When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for most of the year's worth of episodes for the show. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so much. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Chris Duncan to kick off our Let Metal Roll mini-series with a look at the documentary Get Thrashed. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say metal roll or something? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Chris Duncan, who's a guest lecturer in music at the University of Iowa. And we're going to continue the... Iowa State University. Iowa State University. Ah, sorry, sorry. My my bad, my bad. So that's in Ames? That is in Ames. 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 Ah, I knew it. I knew it. All right. So, um, yeah, we're continuing the We Dig Metal Evolution series that I started with Alexi and Eugene. Alexi and Eugene basically tapped out once we got to the 90s on metal. So um, I drafted in Chris, and we're going to pick up uh, follow up the thrash episode that we ended with with the discussion of the documentary Get Thrashed from 2006. So they'll take the discussion a little bit deeper than we got with um, Metal Evolution episode, whatever it was that we, we covered thrash. So Get Thrashed. It's a pretty workmanlike documentary, I would say. Like outlining it, it was super easy because they show their work as it were with the sections like they'll just put a thing on the screen that's an obvious section header what's your take on the overall ambiance and quality of the documentary um i felt like it was more directed at metal fans uh if i recall correctly get thrashed was uh sort of like a, a movie release whereas the metal evolution it it seems pretty obvious that was like for a vh1 music documentary audience whereas this is more directed at metal fans specifically. Yep, I think that's fair enough. And they and they get right into it. And the first thing they point out is the regional nature of the thrash scene. That that you had LA, where you saw Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth all emerge. But that's a little bit deceptive because Metallica moved to San Francisco pretty quickly or to the Bay Area pretty quickly. Slayer stayed headquartered in LA but basically played a ton in San Francisco and toured nationally um so it's it's a little bit of a distortion and also Cliff Burton came from the Bay Area and joined Metallica and and, and pulled him up there the second big hub 
as you probably figure by now, is the Bay Area, San Francisco. You had Exodus come out of there, which was originally Kirk Hammett's band. Kirk Hammett, of course, the lead guitar player for Metallica on most of their albums, or all of their albums, um, but Dave Mustaine was the original guitarist before that. And you also had Testament um, come out of the, the Bay Area and Death Angel and a whole or ton of other bands. I want to is that all right? Well, we'll talk about San Francisco in a little bit more. And then that, the third the third hub is New York and New Jersey with Anthrax and Overkill. But that's also where you had Metallica's uh, early album label, Megaforce. And Metallica spent some time up there and kind of played Pied Piper. So Metallica influenced the San Francisco scene. Then they go to New York and, and New Jersey and influenced the East Coast scene. So kind of definitely um, a Pied Piper, uh, as it were, for Thrash. Yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. Um, their move to San Francisco was basically the Cliff Burton decision. They wanted Cliff Burton. I think he was in a band called, it was either Panic or Trauma. And their bass player at the time was a guy named Ron McGovney, who uh, I think currently is an insurance salesman in North Carolina. Um, when they moved to San Francisco, it was for Cliff because that's where Cliff wanted to move. So I I feel like a little bit of the San Francisco scene influenced them as well. And if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, it was Anthrax who recommended Kirk Hammett to them as their guitarist over Dave Mustaine, and we can get into that little breakup a little bit later. So at I don't know. I feel like the New York scene had quite a bit of influence on Metallica as well. And when you look at a guy like Lars Ulrich, he's Danish, obviously. And I think that, you know, sort of the European flavor of uh, music that he was that he was interested in also. uh, I mean, you could hear it all throughout their music. Yeah, absolutely. And the movie then segues pretty quickly into a discussion of the influences on uh, Metallica and the whole thrash scene in general. And and it all boils down into Wabam, basically, the new wave of British heavy metal, the worst subgenre name of all time um, there. But, you know, you got your Iron Maiden. Def Leppard came out of that scene, but Def Leppard quickly morphed into more of a glam pop metal band and isn't really relevant for the thrash bands. But, you know, Motorhead was arguably part of that scene. Some people classify them as kind of precursors of Nawabum, but there were definitely influences on that. And the most straightforwardly combining punk and metal of any of these groups, but you also had Diamond Head and Venom, Blitzkrieg, Tigers of Pantang, Tank, Mantis, um, on and on. And and I think the really important part of Nawabum, and you know, Judas Priest also has to be in this discussion because they pre preceded the new wave of British heavy metal, but they also adapted to it and thrived throughout it and kind of became popular in the States at the same time or a little bit earlier than Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. And even the Scorpions out of Germany were kind of part of that mix of being big in the late 70s and and crossing over more mainstream in the early 80s but definitely i think the most important thing about nawabam is that that is the moment when heavy metal self-identifies as a subculture where bands are like we are a metal band it's no longer bands like led zeppelin and deep purple that are like we're just hard rock baby you can call us heavy metal if you want but we don't like it very much but bands like judas priest and iron maiden were self-consciously loud and proud heavy metal bands and that to me is probably the most important influence of Nawabam on everything to come. You, you know, there's there's really a lot there too. Like Motorhead, also they're another band that really hated the label heavy metal. Lemmy always fought against the label that he was a that they were a metal band, and he always felt they were more rock. And I can see why he would say that in their sound, but you know, he he never. Uh, he never really declined the royalties from any of the metal covers, so <laughs> who knows? Maybe uh, maybe he was more okay with that label than than he let on. And you know, Judas Priest. I, I mean, like Judas Priest is why we why why all of us think that leather that leather jackets are cool because you know obviously uh, their lead singer Rob Halford is gay. <clears throat> I mean, no one knew that at the time, but some of us knew that, but it wasn't you know it wasn't publicly admitted. <laughs> 
<laughs> was it like a Luther Vandross situation or a... Uh... It was the same guy who beat me up for saying that pro wrestling was fake in eighth grade beat the crap out of me four times for saying that Rob Halford was gay. But I just kept going back to the well because it, it was obvious. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But these guys were so homophobic, I just couldn't help throwing it in their face and getting that thrown back. But let me jump in and, and drop our first uh, song. This is Jump in the Fire. Not from Kill 'Em All. This is Metallica, of course, but this is from the No Life to Leather demo with Dave Mustaine, who co-wrote the track and plays lead guitar here. So this is Metallica's "Jump in the Fire" from No Life to Leather. And that was the original Four Horsemen. And I'm talking about Metallica with James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Cliff Burton, and Dave Mustaine on lead guitar doing Jump in the Fire off the No Life to Leather demo, which is what got them, uh, brought them to the attention of Megaforce Records and, and got their uh, uh, career kickstarted. But yeah, back to Nawabam. Yeah, Lemmy was older. I mean, he was in Hawkwind. He wrote it for Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he, he played in a beat group in the 60s. So he's, he's, he's a general earlier generation. But Judas Priest was definitely loud and proud metal. Iron Maiden was definitely absolutely loud and proud metal. Diamond Head. Uh, Venom certainly was was consciously taking things to a, to a greater extreme. So that's the first big influence um, on Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth. But the other thing that was in the mix at this time was punk and not just punk but hardcore punk and starting with the dead kennedys in 1979 a lot of people don't consider the dead kennedys hardcore and i can see that looking back they don't they seem more like first generation punk but at the time they were clearly something new something more extreme and very much helped kickstart the the hardcore scene. The other two big mainstays of the beginning of hardcore are Black Flag out of uh, uh, Huntington Beach, California, and Bad Brains out of initially Washington, D.C., and then New York. But you also had these British bands that were the class of 82 hardcore bands or punk bands. And this is Discharge, The Exploited, and GBH are the big three that influenced um, the the incipient crop of thrash bands we're talking about and it wasn't like that it was still kind of controversial for metal guys to be into punk at this time so it would tend to be things like jeff hanneman and slayer would be really into the dead kennedys and black flag and he would be sort of preaching and playing them for carrie king um and the rest of the guys in slayer and similarly um you know i think lars ulrich might have been the most into hardcore of the metallica guys and is spreading the word to the others but the fact that those bands had upped the ante as far as speed and tempo and aggression so much kind of put it in a position where the thrash bands had to respond to that and also discharge probably had the most direct musical influence because of their use of what they call the D beat, which becomes a standard um, thrash metal beat. Of course, Fast Eddie of, of Motorhead um, was, you know, put the blast beat on, um, on the double bass drum beat on some Motorhead tracks in 1979 that, that influenced this whole thing. So, but until Metallica comes out on the, um, Metal Blade compilation, the Medical Metal Massacre tape cassette compilation, and hits hit the lights is on that track, and it's it's Metallica (laughs) with two T's, and it's only James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich, and not even a band at this point, just just a a couple guys in a studio or you know practice space making a demo, but that kind of crystallizes it, and immediately people realize there was something new here, and this was a new standard in heavy music. You know, there's there's really a lot there. I should have interrupted you. Like it's de- de- the the Dead Kennedys are also from San Francisco too, if I'm not mistaken. Correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. God. Silicon Valley gave birth to Metallica and the Dead Kennedys in Testament, and now now look at it. It's I, I mean, it's it's wild how much that place has changed in just 
40 years. Um, yeah, it's a whole different, a whole so different thing. It's it's sort of like like do you even think something like that could uh, seem like that could exist in the United States today? Like where if if thrash metal was to be reborn or something like thrash metal was to be reborn, where is it? Where are you getting that sort of environment to have? You know the sort of like the open and progressive attitudes towards music and quite frankly, anti-establishment attitudes. I mean, you know, you listen to like uh, Motley Crue or any of the, uh, you know, like, like the, the, the police bands like that. Metallica is a pretty big repudiation of music such as that. And, you know, like, like you, you mentioned that their first demo was just James and Lars. I mean, those are two guys that met through an old free weekly called The Recycler. I, I mean, I don't even know, like, if they if, if they have free weeklies in, uh, like, cities like New York and Los Angeles these days. Um, yeah, and that's a bigger discussion of we've, we've wrestled with that on the show a few times, like Simon Reynolds' Retromania book, um, which we're going to do a What Have We Learned follow-up on uh, pretty soon. Yeah, that's an open question. I think the internet totally kills it but at the same time this early 80s period is one of the first times where you see musical scenes that are distributed geographically so that at the same time you've got hardcore punk sprouting up in los angeles san francisco dc detroit austin texas you know scattered all over like that at the same time you've got thrash coming out of la san francisco and new york and on the dance scene you've got high energy which is coming out of london new york and san francisco and you've got the participants in these scenes flying back and forth or connecting through the mail by sending fanzines and cassettes to each other um, or getting in the van and driving across country and cross-pollinating that way. So this is a unique period where we're seeing these, what I would call supra-regional scenes, where it's not like, say, the Tulsa sound that evolves in Tulsa in the early 60s and then later spreads out via L.A. and other places, or you have the New Orleans scene, which has its own distinct thing, or the Memphis scene, or Chicago blues, where it would be in a city. Now suddenly communications has gotten cheap enough and powerful enough that you can have these uh, you know, these scenes that are scattered over a whole continent. So the early 80s was kind of it was possible to do that. And you had these alternative weeklies and you had fanzines and magazines because you had no TV coverage of this stuff, none whatsoever. If you were into the new wave of British heavy metal and TV was your only source and mainstream publications, you maybe would get a little bit of news about Iron Maiden and Def Leppard and maybe a mention of Motorhead and Rolling Stone or Circus or something, but that would be it. You're not going to be hearing about Diamond Head. You're not going to be hearing about Venom. You're certainly not going to be hearing about Blitzkrieg or Tank or Raven or anything like that. So these guys were already plugging in into an alternative communications model, but because of all these fanzines and tape compilations and tape trading, they were able to do that. So yeah, it was a unique period in time. Definitely won't see anything like that. So, so it, I mean, like it was kind of like the original sort of liberal idea of what college ought to be. Like you had people from different areas with different influences, you know, traveling back and forth, and uh, you know, they're in, you know, other regions influence influence them when they'd go there, and they'd influence that region when they go there. It was, it was. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if you could get music like that today, and I don't want to go all boomer and say the music of today sucks. That isn't, that that isn't my intention. But yeah, it's just a different period, and and we know that this, you know, the early '80s produced these these phenomenons that we're still talking about, and it remains to be seen what, if anything, um, the 21st century is going to produce that's going to have that kind of staying power. But um, the 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 regionalism. Well, now you're talking about micro regionalism, and we can get to that. But let's get back to let's let's stick to thrash, um, sure, and 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 the beginning of Metallica. But Steph's telling me it's time to cue, and let's go ahead and play. Uh, this is Slayer's aggressive perfector demo from Metal Blade's Medical Metal Massacre Three. This is Slayer aggressive perfector.
that was Slayer's aggressive perfecter demo from Brian Slagle of Metal Blades, Medical, Metal Massacre 3. I don't know why I want to keep saying Medical Massacre 3 every time. But again, this is Slayer when they're in L.A. They're still wearing it's makeup. It's the Angel of Death influence. Yeah. And they're, and they're paint, <laughs> painting their, their uh, you know, they got the football ink under their, their eyes there for a little bit of not quite corpse paint, but more makeup than anybody else in the thrash scene had, although they pretty much gave that up the first time they, they played in San Francisco. But let's get back to Metallica a little bit. You had the um, original lineup coalesce. I'm glad you mentioned um, the original bass player. Uh, was it Ron McCovey? That- Ron McGovney. McGovney, which is such a Spinal Tap name. He sounds like somebody who got kicked out of the third lineup of Steppenwolf, um, you know, Goldie St. John or something like that. It's a classic, classic rock and roll, uh, also ran name. But Heavy they- Metal's Pete Best. Yep, yep. And, and, but they, they bring in Cliff Burton. And that's another thing I think that the um, Metal Evolution documentary didn't really get into the importance of Cliff Burton because not only was he. I mean, Lars Ulrich was kind of, I think I've read somebody say he was the logistical director of Metallica, like, you know, here's where we're going to be, here's what we're going to play, you know, here's what we're getting paid, here's the van. But Cliff Burton was the heart and soul of the music and the the kind of the guiding spirit of Metallica. And if he gave something the thumbs down, it was out. And if he gave something the thumbs up, it was in virtuoso bass player and also classically trained. And that was one of their one of the causes of tension with Dave Mustaine was that Burton and Ulrich felt like he wasn't keeping up with their, their improvisations and Kirk Hammett had been trained by Joe Satriani and, and had that, but that spurs Mustaine then into making Megadeth, this super complicated, super jazz influenced, um, very progressive jazz influence because of Chris Poland. Yeah. Chris Poland is definitely the first guitarist. He was a jazz, jazz guy. Yeah, a big part of it. But Mustaine's rhythms are, are really unique and 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 jazzy. But also Mustaine's behavior and his uh, his incipient alcoholism, and just his obnoxious personality was another factor. Like, I, as great as that lineup was, and Mustaine, you know, co-wrote. I think he got f- three or four writer credits on Kill 'Em All, four, four and and some of the best songs. And obviously, Megadeth put together a very impressive body of work and and you know second only to metallica or slayer i would say in the thrash you know out out of the thrash bands so he was definitely this force to be reckoned with and he even claims you know credit for carrie king's style because carrie king was briefly in an early lineup of megadeth and mustaine certainly they influenced each other cross-pollinated so mustaine's big brag is you know i was a big impact on three out of the five or three out of the four big four you know between metallica megadeth and slayer which i think is totally fair um but you know the the megadeth metallica rivalry has been playing out for decades <laughs> i don't know um what, still what in the comment section of youtube videos it yeah plays out today yeah yeah it, they just just won't let it go um but the way the movie's structured they they run through the whole metallica career they talk about kill them all and then ride the lightning the master puppets they don't make as big a deal out of the move to electra which i think took effect for ride the lightning and then kill them all was yeah, even was re-released yeah. on, on uh on on electra um in 84 but and and the other thing to get across that i think you know what's electra an odd was, coincidence about electra dave was, mustaine's daughter is named electra uh, ironic ironic <laughs> But uh, he has to sign with capital. That, 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 there's there's a head guy if I've ever seen one right there. <laughs> but um, but the thing about Metallica in the '80s, I don't think the Metal Evolution episode got across, and I I don't you know is that they were an underground band throughout the '80s. It you know even though they were you know opening up for ozzy on one of uh, one of his big big tours that was kind of their big break they didn't get on the radio at all and they didn't have any videos until they put out the video for one when they did the injustice for all album after cliff burton died in 1986 so but in this period we're talking about they are underground even though they're building into this massively popular band it's one of those things where like hardcore punk never got as big as metallica and it's like one of those why not and if you look at it specifically well it's because black flag got into a legal battle and couldn't record or 
play for 18 months. It's because the bad brains refused to sign with Electra and kept breaking up and coming back, you know, refused to sign with Island, turned down their opportunity to open up for U2 on the Joshua Tree tour. You know, every band, there's a reason. Minor Threat broke up. Um, but the movement as a whole doesn't, you know, get big until arguably Green Day or whatever. But but thrash metal, because they're led by Metallica, who are just machines and are just out there on the road constantly. And even when Cliff Burton dies in a bus accident in 86, they... Um, they're doing know, bassists like six months later. Yeah, and 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 bring in Jason Newstead and the Garage Days Re-Revisited album and then Injustice for All. So um, it doesn't really you know, miss a step there. Although musically, they're never quite the same. I think for a lot of fans like me, after Master of Puppets, it's not ever quite the same band again. Um, And that, that, how could it be? Yeah. I mean, Cliff Burton was just an absolute musical force. Um, But anyway, then the movie goes on to, to kind of focus on Dave Mustaine and Metallica. And he talks about, you know, being kicked out of Metallica inspired me to be better and faster than Metallica. But, you know, the dirty little secret was I was always better and faster than Metallica. (laughs) So, you know, Mustaine never let go of the bitterness about that. And it just fueled his, his creativity. And, you know, despite his struggles with, with substance abuse and various lineup changes, Megadeth, also just had a relentless career momentum and put out albums like Peace Sells, but who's buying in 1986 that are widely seen as masterpieces. And, you know, Metallica goes on to massive breakthrough success with Injustice for All, and then even bigger with the Black Album that comes out basically at the same time as Nirvana's Nevermind. Megadeth has multiple multi-platinum albums in the 90s as well. So, so unlike many of the thrash bands or the thrash scene as a whole that sort of fades after the Clash of the Titans tour in 1991, Megadeth just keeps going um, and manages to hold. And, and like, it, it was weird because I always felt that people didn't see the Metallica influence on Dave Mustaine because, I mean, all the albums that he released up until Countdown to Extinction or through Countdown to Extinction, were a response to Metallica albums. Metallica releases Kill Em All, he releases uh, Killing Is My Business, and Business Is Good. Very, you know, you think Kill Em All is good, I'll show him. Metallica releases Red the Lightnings, he releases uh, Peace Cells. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, So Far So Good, So What, really can't compare to Master of Puppets. But um, Rust in Peace was very much an answer to the progressive technical masterpiece that was Injustice for All. And Countdown to Extinction was kind of his take on the more, you know, radio-friendly heavy metal that the that the Black Album bought. And I mean that. I, I mean, I really think without being kicked out of Metallica, I don't. I don't know if he has that songwriting career. Uh, you know, you look at the guy; he's pretty erratic. He's got you know just about every self-destructive behavior you could think of and you know without that without that motivation without that just pure spite i don't i don't know if he i don't know if he reaches those heights yeah yeah it's impossible to say but he definitely is spurred on by his his bitterness with metallica and also I think you can very much tell he's not a natural vocalist and that a lot of his vocal lines, I can hear James Hetfield singing those vocal lines and singing them better. Um, <laughs> and that, and that's also one of the things oh, I yeah. read, going back and listening <laughs> to all these early thrash albums uh, that I haven't listened to on Moss in decades. It's very clear to me from the beginning that Metallica had a melodic edge to it and a songwriting edge to it that you can see where they grew into what they became. It was not some hard right turn. It was sort of an organic evolution. But let's take a quick break from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the rest of the big four. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So then the movie moves back to L.A. and talks about the the fact that even though glam is what we remember, you know, and associate with L.A. rock in the 80s, Motley Crue, um, Poison, et cetera, et cetera, there was still a very big scene, thrash scene in L.A. at the same time, mostly, though, in Orange County, not down in Hollywood, but out in the suburbs. That's where Slayer played. Slayer probably played in Hollywood once or twice, but they played in Orange County a ton. Also, you had, you know, Suicidal Tendencies out there. And Suicidal Tendencies is this really unusual band that comes out of the hardcore scene, was originally kind of ugly duckling of the hardcore scene, like they were voted most likely to never succeed and Flipside or one of those mags one year, and the next year they're band of the year and most hated, I think. And and we'll talk about this a little more. Suicidal cultivated these gang contacts and there was a whole scene of people that you would call suicidals who emulated suicidal tendencies and had this vibe and they would tend to fight with the the hardcore guys and um any of the other various they were very much sort of like the straight edge gangs or the gg allen emulators there were these various sort of forces and the suicidals were one of those um and we'll we'll talk about a big show uh, in san francisco i think in a minute but then back to slayer you know slayer um heavy in orange county that that they were an equal and opposite reaction to glam is how they're described in the movie. Um, they wore makeup early on, but abandoned that as soon as they went up to San Francisco. And and the pits, that's the big difference between thrash and Nawabum is that slam dancing comes over from punk and becomes part of the metal scene in San Francisco. And the Nawabum band guys, I mean, it was just a whole different kind of dude that insisted on bodily autonomy and did not want to be touched and you know would fight you or stab you if if you tried to slam dance with them but by this point a younger generation of metal fans is more open um and and into it in touch with their feelings yeah you know willing to hit a hit a stranger with uh that's not wearing a shirt yeah and and that it becomes the most intense uh uh pits going anywhere and you know, Slayer has another career arc where they start with Haunting the Chapel and um, um, Hell Awaits, and then and then you get Rain and Blood in 1986. And they don't talk about Rick Rubin and Def Jam here, but Rick Rubin produces Rain and Blood and gets this amazing sound quality, uh, lets them be as raw and visceral as they want, but you know, just perfects the sound. So it's just this it sounds professional. Sound. Yeah, and it's professional. Just this incredible album, and Rain and Blood's probably the 
platonic ideal of thrash um and and you know it gets them bigger but then they move segue to the san francisco scene they cut so, to kirk well, hammett you, okay. you're, you're just you're just gonna let that go you're gonna let go that you don't find it ironic that someone with um how should i put this Kerry King's hobbies is from Orange County. I mean, I mean, there's just that other little influence there. And you mentioned Ruben, like that was always that was always like Kerry King's out. He's, he's like, hey, look, you know, my producer's Rick Ruben. Like, you're gonna t- you're gonna call me a Nazi, you know? Tom Araya, my my lead singer, he's Catholic. You know, we we sing about Satan and stuff. Like, it's just it's just an act and. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many Slayer shows you've been to, but uh, oh. okay, yeah, I, I, I think I've been to five, uh, but I mean, they're all much, probably much, much after you started going. Yeah, so I'm in '88 for the first time with Motorhead and Overkill, and it was just an absolute religious conversion experience. Then I saw him with Striper, and and what. I would say mercy killing, but there was no mercy to it. <laughs> just torturing. I was like putting a pen through a butterfly, uh, and then and then saw it a couple yeah, more did, times. Did it look like uh, the January sixth riots back then, or is that <laughs> was that sort of a, a newer? Yeah. That was a newer twist, but it definitely <laughs> it definitely had an had a perpetrator and victim feel to it. The very few striper fans in the audience were fleeing for their lives in short order. Um, yeah, just just. Just craziness. And yeah, uh, ugliness, you know, Rain and Blood opens up with Angel of Death, which is about Mingle and Auschwitz. And, and uh, you know, it's been controversial. The opening line is Auschwitz, the meaning of pain, the way that I want you to die. <laughs> yeah, but they're speaking in character. And, you know, you can make horror movies from the point of view of a serial killer and, and people don't blame you for that. So that's the, the latitude musicians want. But well, that's like... To his to his point, I mean, he said he's like, you know, I mean, I don't know what your language restrictions are, but he said, you know, hey, what's more effed up than that? And you know, I yeah, 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 that, that's a, that is a good that is a good question. Yeah, uh, they were dealing in an environment where Venom had come out. You know, Black Sabbath's attitude was always like, we dabbled in the occult, and we're sure sorry, and we we're scared, and we learned our lesson, and look at our crucifixes. Venom was like openly we're satanic but with kind of a wink and a nod because the whole thing had a certain you know clown car feeling that that, that you could tell it was a bit of a put-on but with the slayer it was harder to tell it was a put-on and uh the intensity level was torqued up although they were never openly satanist you know it's not until you get to death metal that you get into uh openly satanic bands again after venom but let's keep going and, and move the, get the, the move to san francisco like kirk hammett is on the is on the documentary saying yeah yeah metallica's from la but the reality is they got kicked out of la they came to san francisco and they came alive plus you had exodus which was kirk hammett's original band plus death angel a testament violence heathen forbidden also possessed which many people consider the first death metal band and that's one thing i also think it's important to keep in mind here is that bands like venom and possessed and bathory and celtic frost and others that are seen in retrospect as part of other scenes the death metal or black metal scenes um at the time were seen as part of the extreme you know you just had extreme metal and we didn't know if it was called thrash metal or speed metal um you knew there was something different than what had come before but still um you know even something like man of war which we now say is power metal at the time was just super extreme heavy metal and was coming you buy them in the same record stores you see them on the same bills so there's a lot of cross-pollination between these sort of emergent uh scenes but the the key thing about san francisco i think is that you had these clubs like the old Waldorf club and Ruthie's Inn, and it became a true scene where you might go out to see Death Angel, but Metallica is going to be in the crowd and Exodus is going to be in the crowd. And at the end of the night, Testament's there and you're going to go back to Metallica's house and party. So um, it's a true scene in the sort of Beatles uh, in the Cavern Club in Hamburg with Jerry and the Pacemakers hanging out. It's very much that kind of cross-pollination. And Exodus is a band that is just outside the big four and for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is Kirk Hammett getting poached by Metallica 
but also because you had this basically unaccountable delay. If you actually read the history of Exodus, there are reasons why their first album didn't come out until 1985. But the reality is they could have had at least a major demo out by 83, 84, definitely should have had their album out by 84. But Bond in the Blood doesn't come out till 85. And then when it does come out and they tour, they immediately fire their singer, Paul Bailoff, who's this legendary metalhead and, and, just sort of embodied kind of the John Belushi of thrash metal, just embodied the vibe. Um, you know, like Gary Holt, who's the mainstay of Exodus said, you know, Blaylock's love for metal was undeniable. He might forget lyrics. He'd come in out of time, but he terrified the posers. And that's another thing. Like these guys love to beat up glam metal guys. Um, but this musical chairs thing continues. And after they fire Blaylock, then they go and poach Testament's, uh, singer Zetro Souza, so you know, which sets that testament back, and they they ultimately get um, their definitive singer, Chuck Billy. yeah, Chuck Billy. Um, but again, it, it causes these delays, and I think that that's one of the factors that keeps Exodus and Testament out of the quote unquote big four. And then that they focus in on the fans, which is a key part. <clears throat> but Steph tells me it's time to cue, and perfect. Let's hear Exodus Bonded by Blood. This is with Paul Blaylock. Bonded by Blood by Exodus off their first album, Bonded by Blood, featuring the late, great Paul Blayloff on vocals. And you can hear the virtues and the limitations of Blayloff and why they would possibly want to fire him for more than just personal reasons. He had a pretty limited voice as well. And and all these bands, there's definitely a prog factor aspect to all these bands where, and I think it's just coming from Metallica because you had Cliff Burton and Kirk Hammett, who were into these more complicated melodic ideas. And, and you know, obviously Hammett and, and Ulrich, Hetfield and, and Ulrich were into these complicated structures as well. So when you talk about the history of prog metal, I think you have to include Metallica. I think you have to include all of Thrash pretty much because they were definitely playing with ideas that came out of the prog scene. But let's get back to the fans and, and talk about it because this, again... like metal was so dominant in the 80s i don't think it's possible for people to comprehend now that metal and rock in the 80s were pretty synonymous even though you had the punk scene and hardcore punk and the nascent indie punk scene you know husker do and the replacements and etc meat puppets and those bands that were coming out of the hardcore scene but moving in more of a uh, you know alternative indie pop direction um you had that, and you also had like the sort of Bruce Springsteen Heartland rocker bands, which thankfully never got on. But you had a ton of bands that wanted to be well, the Bruce next Springsteen generation. is still uh, selling out stadiums. Springsteen, yeah, but I'm talking about the bands influenced by him, like the Del Fuegos and and et cetera, et cetera, the Beaver Brown band and all these kind of bands. But but other than that, if you are a rock band, you are pretty much a metal band in the '80s, and so even. There's even some back and forth between the glam and the thrash scenes that we see in retrospect as totally separate. But you look at a band like Pantera that literally evolved through all of it um, and just shows that, you know, the scene was connected. But the thing about thrash was they had the most dedicated fans. They were overwhelmingly dudes. The chicks were more into the glam scene. And so, you know, as good sexist rockists, we disapprove of that. And, and we love the scenes that are all dudes and all testosterone. And the thrash fans were extremely dedicated. They were ordering well, yeah, the records I mean, to the they, mail. Go ahead. Who, who, who had better mascara tips than Vince Neil? <laughs> it's true. You know, uh, and, and they, that, they that is not a homophobic or sexist joke. That is a Motley Crue joke, by the way. Yes. Yes. And there's nothing, <laughs> you know, that you got to admire the, the mascara game. They had. Um, but, the um 
you know, the thrashing was intense. They perfected the the heavy metal dress code, the jeans jacket vest over the leather jacket with all the patches and the band buttons and the big rocker of your favorite album on the back, you know, and you'd wear the white sneakers and the tight jeans, studs on your wristband and, and maybe your belt, um, you know, baseball sleeve shirts, long hairs. And chain wallet. Yeah, chain wallet, definitely. Um, and then, you know, and the, the shows themselves were like a football game or a wrestling match. I mean, this, the stage diving and headbanging and moshing. Lots of kids got hurt. Plenty of people got crippled for life, but plenty of people didn't, you know, and, and that was kind of the, the trade-off. Any, any, and then they've got a great quote from Creator. He says, of course, the fans love you and they're totally faithful, but if you release a shitty record, they will tell you. <laughs> and that, that's that's absolutely very true. absolutely true you know and then and then the movie moves over to the new york scene and talks about you know you had anthrax nuclear assault stormtroopers of death later uh, mod um and and then and then and also this overlap with the new york city hardcore scene and you know the bad brains have moved from dc to new york and kind of johnny appleseed did this whole scene with bands like agnostic front and reagan youth and and later on biohazard and um you know a ton of a ton of bands out of new york that becomes kind of a mainstay of crossover punk metal uh in the later 80s and on into the 90s but early in the 80s you already had what they called the old bridge militia which is this super hardcore fan base you had tons of fans out of jersey also big contingents out of queens and brooklyn and staten island um and bands like slayer and metallica would come and stay and and, and st- spend weeks or months staying at either the megaforce house or the old bridge militia house and playing and you know having people take them in when they were broke and had nowhere else to go uh and and you had the lamore clubs you had one in brooklyn and one in queens that were having weekly shows uh, playing this kind of heavy rock you also had the 516 club where you had a dj a dj night um playing metal records which just like in london where they had dj clubs but they would have the pa set up different more like stacks of marshals and so the sound was more like what you'd get from a rock band um rather than you know the kind of sound system you might have at the paradise garage or or uh the warehouse in chicago and so it's a it's a it's a different thing but it gets that modern sound system dj power into into the metal scene and then then they come to anthrax and they talk about that the main thing that's different about east coast thrash is that people like joey belladonna the vocalist for anthrax were melodic singers and they always sang rather than than growling or roaring like most of the thrash singers so that was kind of the unique thing also anthrax was very self-conscious about being connected to the punk scene and being influenced by the punk scene. And then later on about being influenced by the rap scene. And of course they go on to pioneer rap rock uh, in, in collaboration with public enemy. Actually the I'm the man EP comes out before that, uh, you know, and, and that was a big thing that opened so, up a lot of metalheads uh, to rap. I know my metal friends once anthrax gave it the sign off, then they were a lot more open to run DMC or the Beastie Boys. How did that kind of compare with Walk This Way? It was... Because I forget they had just an Aerosmith version, the the Run DMC version. Yeah, well, I mean, the the Run DMC-Aerosmith collaboration, I think for a lot of people, kind of came out of nowhere. You saw it on MTV first, and it, it was hard, I think, for people to fully get what was going on i mean everybody liked it as a popular record or you know not, not everybody liked it but it was popular people liked it but it didn't have any context unless you knew the history of run dmc but if you're a rock fan you're just seeing who are these rappers and why are they working with aerosmith whereas with anthrax i'm the man initially a lot of think people i think thought that they were making fun of rap rather than having fun with rap but by the time they're collaborating with public enemy it was just interesting to watch that evolution because the people i knew that were hardcore metalheads and hardcore anthrax fans memorized every word of the i'm the man ep and and could do that rapping and then you'd check back in with them and they'd be at a party sing along with the beastie boys fight for your right to party or tone Loke's wild thing just like everybody else 
then maybe if you, you know, by the time the Anthrax Public Enemy collaboration comes out, these guys are blasting Public Enemy and NWA and their tape decks in their cars. So so it's kind of an evolutionary thing, but I think Anthrax deserves a lot of credit for helping um, spread hip-hop into, into, you know, the white suburban metalhead demo. Well, and, just kind of a super underrated band generally. I mean, they're sort of... I, I mean, I went to the Big Four tour at Yankee Stadium, Anthrax was. I mean, you talking about Clash of the Titans? No, no. uh, Anthrax, uh, Anthrax, Megadeth, Slayer, and Metallica. They played. Oh, what year is this? 2011. Wow. It was was like this big thing. They had a tour. They played in uh, Indio or whatever the Coachella City is. I think it's Indio. Yeah. One of those California places. And they had a European tour at a DVD. But uh, when they played the stadium, uh, your Yankee Stadium. I went, and I mean, Anthrax—they got kind of the hero's welcome. They—I uh, mean, obviously, like none of those old places, Lamore, CBGBs, etc. Some New York dickhead landlord kicked those kicked those clubs out long ages ago. But uh, I think like the mayor of the Bronx or whatever the borough borough president—I'm not quite sure how those Yankees do things up there. Um, it, it, like they got they got an anthrax day i think it was like september 13th because i remember it was also the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 huh. it was just around that and I, I mean like you know we, we were talking about earlier that san francisco wasn't always san francisco but new york was kind of always new york i mean even when it was just you know sort of a, a dutch immigrant hub it was still kind of like always new york city and you know, like, I just wonder if being there, being in sort of that and in, in a hub like that is what shaped Anthrax a little bit, a little bit differently from, you know, Megadeth, Slayer and Metallica. I definitely think that was a factor. And also because New York was such a punk city. I mean, it's easy to forget that New York had a rock scene in the 60s, but actually Steph's telling me it's time to cue. So let's let me cue our last track. This is Suicidal Tendencies. Suicidal Maniac from the Join the Army album. not with suicidal tendencies suicidal maniac from the join the army album and this is crossover we'll talk about crossover in a second but let's finish up the anthrax yeah i definitely agree that the new york city uh aspect made them more cosmopolitan and more open-minded than maybe some of the la and san francisco bands were although those were fairly open-minded at least to the punk side of stuff but um but not to the rap side of stuff not in the same way at least not in the same and basically never i mean metallica was notoriously resistant to having ice t's body count on the on the bill with them and guns and roses and that uh ill-fated tour in the early 90s but yeah i think i think anthrax coming out of new york where where cbgb's and the ramones were such a big thing and also the bad brains and the, the new york hardcore scene was such a big thing they had to be more open-minded and more respectful and also you couldn't miss hip-hop in new york in the 80s but one thing that people forget i think is that new york does have a rock and roll history in the late 60s you had bands like the rascals and vanilla fudge that were on atlantic and and had big influence and big impact at the time but never quite produced anything to compete with like what San Francisco or Detroit put out um, in the late sixties, you know, with the grateful dead and Jefferson airplane or the Stooges and MC five and, and, you know, Ted Nugent and grand funk railroad and all that stuff coming out of the Midwest. Also Alex Cooper, Cooper was messed up in that scene, but now let's talk about crossover because crossover, you know, hardcore kind of comes into the story at two points. First is an influence, although kind of a, under, uh, on the down low influence at least at first it's not really until metallica's garage days re-revisited um out, ep comes out where they've got covers not just of diamond head but also of the misfits and killing joke where 
they're showing their influences on their sleeve. And of course, Jeff Hanneman of Slayer was big on, you know, flying his dead Kennedy's flag and his dead Kennedy stickers um, and his black flag bars stickers on, on things as well. So people knew that these thrash bands were influenced by punk and you had, you know, uh, Stormtroopers of Death, which is basically Anthrax with a different singer um, doing a crossover punk album. But around this time, you had a bunch of punk bands, particularly DRI, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles and CIC, Corrosion of Conformity, coming out of Texas and the Carolinas, respectively. And they openly start becoming more metal bands and suicidal tendencies which had been the most commercially successful hardcore band with their institutionalized uh hit single that was on mtv and on the repo man soundtrack and everything they cross over completely with join the army and the metal bands kind of meet them in the middle and so you get shows like this uh anthrax um dri coc possessed show at the olympic auditorium in la three thousand fans and, you know, I think it was Scott Ian that described it as you had skinheads versus punks versus suicidals versus metalheads versus bikers. All, all of these groups are in there. They're all macho. They're all f- willing and ready to fight. And they're all fighting with each other at one. At, you know, there's five pits going at one time. The, the show is ultimately stopped when there's a brawl on stage between bikers and suicidals. Some kid gets his head cracked up with a mic stand and they, um, you know, have to have to shut the whole thing down. But so initially, it's, I think, a testament to the power of the music and the cultural stuff going on that there's this much violence uh, associated with it. And people are taking their scenes so seriously. In just a few years, it's not going to be any big deal for metal fans to go to a punk show or punk fans to go to a metal show. And, you know, this kind of if we can walk together, why can't we rock together thing gets solved. But but in the in the mid to late 80s, it's very much a live controversial issue. Um, and so bands like Suicidal Tendencies and Anthrax on the other side are, are kind of doing the Lord's work and bringing people together. And th- another thing about Suicidal Tendencies to keep in mind is that they, you know, Mike Moore, the lead singer, was very much coming out of the the Chicano scene in L.A. and, and that, that kind of gang culture. And then you had Rocky George, their second guitar player, um, joins in the band in time for Join the Army, who's African-American. And so, you know, shows a, a lot – this isn't as a lily white a scene as you might think. And you know, those those guys are part of it. Um and then the Chuck last Billy thing was Native American too. Yes, yeah, and 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 definitely and, and Death Angel also, those guys are Hispanic as well. And then then they kind of talk about the touring life and how basically a few of the bands, Metallica being the biggest one, obviously, but also Megadeth and Anthrax and Slayer, go on to this sort of rock star level of success. But the bands who didn't make that eventually kind of ran into the ground with, with, you know, you toured themselves into the ground. The scene had a limited size, um, alternative metal and grunge kind of come along in the late eighties and early nineties and, and push it aside. Death metal and black metal and the metal underground kind of push it aside. And, you know, they talk about the cost of it, obviously Cliff Burton dying in a bus accident in 86, but you also had Death Angel where no one was killed, but they had a bus wreck, multiple injuries. That's why they weren't on the Clash of the Titans tour. Um, you know, Paul Blayloff ultimately dies of a stroke after he's long after he's fired from Exodus. Uh, Bobby Blitz of Overkill has a seizure on stage in 2002. So just a hard James lifestyle. got set on fire. On yes. By Pyro, uh, too. Yeah, yeah. So all these guys are paying. But the last thing I want to mention is is this international aspect in the European scene because bands like Creator and Sodom and Destruction in Germany are a big part of the scene. American fans are listening to those bands. And more importantly, I think American bands are going over to Germany and playing for the by far the largest audiences of their careers. And um, it makes this a an international scene. And then by the time you get you know, bands like uh, the, the Swiss contingent, like Celtic Frost and Corner. You know, you had Voivod in Canada. And then you've got like Sepultura and Sarcophago in Brazil. So it becomes this international, truly global scene. And, and that's a, a big part of it. Anything you want to add about the European thrash? Oh, not really. Uh, the European metal I liked was always the more... New album influences. Uh, I mean, Crater was 
I got I, I, I got into Crater a little bit later in life, um, but uh, most of most of the, I don't know because because like I always think of thrash as like an American genre, and not to be overly nationalistic, but I I feel like that was kind of like the United States' first contrib- first contribution to heavy metal and. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just always associated with, with American. I wouldn't bands. say it was the first contribution because you know you got bands like Steppenwolf and Blue Cheer and the Stooges and MC5 and you know et cetera et cetera Aerosmith. But but I think what it was was Thrash was the moment when the American band seized the flag, where they were the world champions of heavy metal for the first time. Because no matter how great Steppenwolf or MC5 was, there was always Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple over in England. And in the late 70s, it was always Judas Priest or Iron Maiden or Motorhead. You know, like England had been setting the standard for metal. And after the 80s, that just wasn't the case. And we'll talk about, um, you know, some there's still a few more English contributions to come. But yeah, you're never going to again see the the flag of metal the kings of metal are never going to come out of, of England again. From now on, it's going to be kind of between the States and Europe going back and forth and fighting. And then we talked about the Clash of the Titans tour on the Metal Evolution episode. But again, that's the kind of the capstone of thrash metal. 1991, Anthrax Slayer and Megadeth go out on tour. They take Alice in Chains, who are not yet known, out as their opening act. And they're playing like Madison Square Garden and other 15 to 20,000 uh, seater arenas. And at the same time, Metallica's Black Album comes out and they cross over. And essentially, I really think the Black Album is a grunge album and was part of the grunge revolution in 91. I mean, you're at, at that time on MTV you're hearing Nirvana and Metallica back to back on MTV over and over again, Pearl Jam, Metallica, Alice in Chains, Metallica, you know, and, and they caught on and moved on in a way into the nineties that Anthrax definitely struggled in the nineties. Slayer definitely struggles after they fire Dave Lombardo and they kind of have a moment in the wilderness and they never really try to accommodate grunge, although they do sadly try to accommodate new metal later on. And like we mentioned, Megadeth did accommodate these trends quite successfully. But Thrash, basically, after the Clash of the Titans, is um, a past movement. But the last thing we should bring up is Pantera, who start out as a Van Halen-style hair band. By Cowboys from Hell, they're a thrash band. And by Volgo Display of Power, they're this new thing retroactively we call groove metal. They were clearly influenced by bands like Helmet, and other you know noise rock and alt metal bands and brought new aspects into it but pantera is the one unabashedly metal band that is popular through the whole grunge era any any quick comments on pantera uh i i i I just wanted to riff more on like the thrash metal groove metal thing because like i always considered them just straight groove metal i never i never really associated them with thrash like their their riff patterns were always more i mean like all rock and roll is bluesy but they seem to like turn up the gain on the blues side of the of the dial and whereas i don't know thrash i always felt uh just more of a classical influence yeah, they're definitely different, and we'll do a whole episode on Pantera here coming up um, and talk about that. But at the time, especially like when Cowboys from Hell came out in 1990, there wasn't anything – like groove metal is still a pretty nebulous concept, which basically means Pantera and people who sound like them. I mean there's not like a huge number of groove metal bands. So at the time when Cowboys from Hell came out, it was kind of like, hey, check this out. And I'm like, Pantera, they're a corny hair band. And somebody's like, no, man, they've gone thrash. And and so that was kind of the context we had to see it in. But at the same time, keep in mind that things like Seven Churches by Possessed, which is now seen as the first death metal album, when that came out, it was just another thrash band. It was a weird one, but we, we saw it in the context of thrash. Same thing with Celtic Frost or Celtic Frost or Bathory, things that we now see as black metal were seen as thrash because that was kind of the only um you know bag to put it in so anyway so so where do you consider death death the band death 
Definitely we... the Florida band death, not the Detroit 70s band death, but the Florida band death is definitely death metal. But like I said, their first albums, their first cassette, I first saw, I had a buddy who worked in a record store and had all the new stuff. He had that in there right next to Death Angel, you know, and, and it was just like another looking at the cover and everything. I, it obviously was a little different because it had the whole iconography that we now recognize as death metal something stuck out about it but at the time it we didn't have a vocabulary i didn't know what death metal was so i just considered it as an interesting variant of thrash at the time so these trends are kind of imposed retroactively and at the time those records were sold in the same they were sorted in the same section of the record stores they were sold in the same record stores they were playing the same clubs you know so the, the 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 lines were not that stark but um any final thoughts on get thrashed chris that was an interesting documentary always happy to talk thrash metal um i i mean obviously one of the probably the most successful heavy metal subgenre uh produced the it produced the biggest metal band ever and i'm happy you had me on yeah, well, happy to have you here, and we're going to come back. We're going to continue the Metal Evolution series. Going to, the grunge episode is coming up next, but I really think we need to talk about crossover and alternative metal, and by that I mean things like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, uh, Living Color, Fishbone, the, um, Faith No More. There's just a whole a whole subset of stuff that is going to become big influences on new metal, but also noise rock bands like Helmet and Jesus Lizard. There was a whole lot going on in the late 80s, early 90s before that Nirvana was actually part of. And, and I want to kind of talk about that pre thing. So I think that's, that's going to be the next thing. So for Nate Wilcox and Chris Duncan, we've been talking heavy metal. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Chris Duncan back for another Let Metal Roll episode focused on grunge bands The Melvins and Tad. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.